Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. Today, we have a real treat for everyone. We have Corey Keys on the podcast as our guest. Corey, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Well, it's great to be with you both. So I'm going to read your bio, Corey, and then we're going to dive into questions because Amanda and I have so much to ask you. We don't want to waste another second. Corey Keyes is a sociologist and professor emeritus at Emory University, whose research on mental health, including his pioneering work on the science of human flourishing, has had wide-reaching policy implications. Over the course of his career, he's advised the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Happiness Forum, as well as governmental agencies in Canada, Northern Ireland, and Australia. And Corey has a new book coming out called Languishing, How to Feel Alive Again in a World That Wears Us Down, which Amanda and I have both read. Amanda's holding it up right now. We loved it, and we cannot wait to talk about that and so much more. So, Corey, today you are a world-renowned professor. You actually used to teach at my alma mater, Emory University. You're a researcher, and you're an author who to dumb it down, right? And you can explain it in much more eloquent terms, but you study what makes life worth living, which isn't that something that we all want to know more about. It is so important, um, but I imagine that personal circumstances led you there. So since we love to talk about careers and how people ended up where they were on this podcast, what happened in young Corey's life that inspired you to do what you do now? Because I don't imagine that someone studies what makes life worth living out of thin air. No. And in fact, that's um, a big part of the book. And I noticed um, I didn't intend it to be part memoir. Um, it, it was more um, just a natural approach because the way I taught was about um, when I I taught courses on mental health and illness, and I taught a course on happiness, among other things. And I found it very helpful for my students to be very open about my own journey and vulnerabilities and struggles. Um, and so that's front and center because the experience of going from uh, a home where I didn't feel safe and where there was daily abuse to suddenly at the age of 12 being transplanted into my grandparents' home during their retirement had a massive change on me. And it was before that I was in detention. I mean, several times a week, almost every day. I was not, school was a torture for me because, you know, I, I was a kid that I couldn't sit still. When I got to my grandparents' place, I went to, from detention to an honor roll student. And I mean, it was like immediate. I just loved 
when I we were done with our chores at night, I would go immediately on my own. Nobody asked me. I would go to the back bedroom and I would start studying. I just loved the quiet, the peace, the love, the safety. I just ate it up. Everything about being with my grandparents. And so for the first time, as I say in my dedication, that's where the seeds of flourishing were sown. In that home. So I've seen, I had two childhoods. Up, the one that was up to age 11, which was horrifying. I mean, it was really, and I'm not alone. Not, we all know about the adverse childhood experience study. It's, and, and yet then I had a wildly wonderful, warm, loving, very different childhood to, to end, to begin and end my teenage years. And so that's, that's actually what led me on this journey to become a sociologist of all things also, and to study. I had to find a way to feel at home in this world because I only I didn't have any other family left. And my grandparents, of course, died very early in my life. And so I was essentially alone. And before I was adopted and after, I, had, I realized if I wanted anything good in my life, I would have to create it. I would have to go and get it. This was a story that out of necessity, I wanted to know if there was such a thing as good mental health. And do other people like me feel at home? Does it make them feel at home in this world? Thank you, for, thank you for sharing that story. And it's so important to remind everybody of the power of vulnerability, right? Because you found that by sharing your story with your students, it unlocked possibility for them. It maybe made them mm-hmm. feel at home, accepted, less alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that often as we go about our, our daily lives, we have so many opportunities to be vulnerable with those around us, whether it's people mm-hmm. we know or strangers on the street. And it's always just a powerful reminder that you know, by being vulnerable, by being open, by sharing our stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, just what a beautiful gift that can be to to those around us. So, you know, Corey, we'll, we'll dive into your work because it's it's fascinating and it's so applicable to every one of our listeners. But again, we, we do love to talk about people's careers on this show. So, you know, you are a retired professor. Congratulations. We love that you retired. Um, but We've never really asked anyone or spoken with anyone about the world of academia. So really high level, can you give us an overview of the world of academia? Like, How does one <laughs> become a professor and how does research tie into that profession? Because I know that your research led you to uh, write the book that when this show launches will have come out. Yeah. Well, ac- academia was, um, I've never said this publicly, but it was a place where I thought it was about the only place where I thought I would could function well with the person I had become that had, had been forged out of the anvil and fire of trauma and depression and PTSD and whatnot. Um, because there's a great deal of independence. Um, and you are essentially running your own business is the way I think about it. And nobody's watching over you, telling you, well, here, go write this article, go do this, um, do this in your class, teach this, teach this way. You might get some mentoring if you if you ask for it or if you're in a good place. And Emory did um, provide mentoring, in te- and particularly around teaching. It was a school that really did value good teaching. I love the life of the mind. I write in my book about the importance of play. And to me, I can imagine... I, was, I felt like an artist and a writer in a candy store because I got to play with ideas every day. And, and I just marvel because I'm the first generation from my family to, to go on. We were um, 
My family was um, very working class, and my grandfather laid tile his entire life, and his body showed that. You know, working class people's bodies reflect the, the hard labor that they have done, and I value that. Don't get me wrong, and I love to do as much, but I, I saw the, the toll it took, and I, I knew I couldn't do that because I, as a graduate student, I had to have my neck fused because I had herniated discs already. I was like, oh my God, because I had to stop playing football. I went to undergraduate and I was going to play football and I couldn't, I hurt my back and I hurt my neck. And I was like, it was a blessing in disguise. And so I knew from a very early time when, when I took my first psychology course, that this was, this is my home. This is, I just loved it. And then I found, I found my cause, my purpose, um, because I really, really think we need to do a better job for people with mental illness, and especially the, the, the invisible ones, as I like to refer to them, who are languishing and get no, nobody's attention. So academia was a place with great freedom. It was a lot of egos, and, if, and trust me, it's not an, I, I suspect no workplace is very nice if people are very protective of what they do, and if you come along and try to do something and different and change things, they try to be very aggressive about trying to shut you down. And and I didn't realize this, but I was take I was doing something very different because I now know this. Nobody had studied mental health before I came along. Nobody, mm-hmm. right? Serious people studied mental illness, and I was told that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean. What what the, what are you talking about, Corey? Why are you wasting your time over? And they kept using the pejoratively the word. Why are you studying happiness? Mm-hmm. Like I don't study just happiness, but you know they were really after me because um, it was that's the nature of academia. So you have to have a a strong sense of purpose and belief in what you're doing, especially if you're taking something that's been considered unimportant and invisible in the world, and then suddenly you're elevating it because partly the status quo already has defined for us what's important, what gets attention, and if you br- and what's unimportant also matters to them because they want to keep it invisible so that you stay focused on what they care about. Couldn't do life any differently. I always want to change things and do something different. If you give me something to do, I'm going to try to do it my way. Not out of stubbornness, but it's yeah. so, boy, did I, I didn't realize I was rankling feathers. Um, <laughs> well, we are so glad that you did. Um, you know, I know that you were one of the uh, sort of the the pioneers or the forefathers of the field of positive psychology. And fun fact, when I was a recent Columbia graduate and uh, a, a budding yogi, I, I, I looked deeply into the UPenn program, like, I, I, one of my yoga mentors had, was an early student there and her business actually had, had the name flourishing uh, in it. I can't remember it now, but when I, you know, when I had the book, I was like, oh, this reminds me of, you know, that whole phase of my life, the the very early beginnings of what would become full plate, full cup. Um, so I am very familiar with what positive psychology is. I'm familiar with what it isn't, but for people listening, can you yeah. kind of define what is the field of positive psychology? We know it's not just like sunshine, rainbows, happiness, right? It's it's a lot of things. Um, can you just sort of summarize what positive psychology is as a field? Well, I, I will give it a try. And <laughs> I will, I will uh, in full disclosure, I 
I was part of the, the 18 young scholars selected to sort of form the nucleus. And I was very involved in the first three years. Then I had to step back and I I left it because they were not very fond of what I was doing. And that was very clear after the first summit that I had organized because I didn't separate mental health from mental illness. And in fact, I saw that to me, positive psychology's purpose was to really help uh, people who are suffering not to ignore it and go on and just talk about happiness for people who are already doing well and want to be happier. And then I also talked about my diagnosis, which was, they saw that as medicalizing the positive. And I said, I'm very deliberately going about my work, trying to take psychiatry and turn it on its head. And I'm not going to separate the positive from the negative because that's not who we are. And that was we had a big discussion at Don Clifton's house in Lincoln <laughs> after that. And it was clear to me um, I was not going to be supported by, by the, the movement. And so that was fine because I was, you know, the fact of the matter is positive psychology didn't make this happen. We were already doing this. Mm. The Carter Foundation started these successful aging networks that predates long before positive psychology came along, a far more a proactive and positive approach to aging. And we were studying this. And in fact, the study that uh, we started um, is still living on. And, and had it not been done, young scholars wouldn't have this amazing data set that's longitudinal since 1995, actually. Wow. Yeah. Following up every 10 years. And that's to the credit of Carol Riff, one of, one of my mentors and then collaborators and friends. So you, you, positive psychology has done a lot to really build the field and spread it around globally. But it's it's a hard thing to pin down because for the first 10 years, nobody, everyone was focused on positive emotions mm-hmm. and, and had nothing to say about the negative. And then Carol Riff went to a conference and talked about that. And I was always talking about that. And now more people are talking about that. Um, but the one thing I found lacking was that it didn't have a cause. Mm. For me, um, I don't trust people or movements that don't have a cause other than, well, <laughs> this is a people like talking about happiness. Well, what are you trying to help? How are you trying? What are you trying to fix in the world? And to me, languishing was a uniquely ignored problem in the world that for me defined the role of positive psychology, why flourishing was so important. Right, right, right. yeah. On top of mental illness, because let's face it, even to this day, we're still writing, hearing, and seeing articles about the crisis, mm-hmm. and it's growing. Yeah. So we do need a better and different way, and I'm, I was just disappointed, to tell you the truth, yeah, all these people were interested in, in positive psychology, but I didn't know what their cause was, yeah. and I don't trust people who don't who who don't have a purpose beyond them, themselves. Sure, promoting their own egos. Yeah, and yeah. I, I'm not saying that everyone in that movement was that's what they're doing, but how can you publish books when when you barely had any science the first five years? And I waited. I'm the turtle, not the hare. <laughs> I waited. 
to publish this book because I wanted them to make sure there was a huge body of evidence. They were putting books out left and right. And yeah, I read some of those books. <laughs> and I'm like, how can you do that? You just said there's no scientific, no science. And then in the next breath, they're writing as if there's a big body of science. And there wasn't. So I was very confused as a young scholar. I was like, I don't, I don't want to, I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before you came along. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's interesting because I um, I appreciate your, I don't know if I would call it a rebellious streak, but an independent streak in terms of carving things out in the way that they actually present to you, right? Both in terms of the way that your data is showing up, the research that you're doing, and also the way that your, your own personal mission has sort of driven you. Um, and one of the things you talk about is the power of possibility and how having possibility in our lives to develop positive things, feel better, build relationships is uh, is your focus versus trying to fix things. And so I guess maybe a two-part question. Talk to us about the power of possibility, but then I'm also curious how you feel about this sort of proliferation of like trauma research being very... Um, Everybody's talking about it. It's everywhere. You obviously have, you know, a, a childhood history of, you know, the ACEs and all that starting out in that. And but that that wasn't your focus. So, yeah, that's a lot. But no. I just I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah. Oh, that's part of my book and my story. Because when I took the ACE study, I the questionnaire, my score was above seven, and um, and I taught. In my class, and here I was living it, and that part I did not tell my students because I just wasn't ready. Um, it's something pretty sacred, and you don't just allow any just anybody in. But then the book, having said that, I know I it's all over the book because I I think people who are, who've had the experiences I've had, who have had a part of them taken away that you can't ever get back because you, then you always live in the present moment thinking that was me and that's not me now and you took a part of me and now I'm really different for the longest time I didn't feel like my life was possible everything I had to do I had to work very hard very hard to get and um because there's something about PTSD and depression that just will not let you go it's just always, oh, everything's harder, everything. Even a little insult or a colleague coming into my office and shutting the door and sitting in between me and the door. I'm like, he doesn't know what he's doing. And I'm like, fuck. I'm like, excuse my French, but I'm like, fucking hells. I, I feel trapped. I don't want, I don't like, I had to live that for my entire, I'm still living it to tell you the truth. It won't be, I'm, after this podcast, I'm going to my trauma therapist. And I'll be honest about it. It's taken me a lifetime to work through this. A lifetime, and I will never be finished. Um, but I turned the corner. There's a corner that was turned when I realized um, there is something about this book that finished literally a chapter in my life. And I said, I can, I can lay down my, my guard now that I've shown to the world that... Um, I and my family aren't cursed. And if they were, the curse is over. Mm. Right? Because I put something that 
I see it as a gift that came out of the brokenness and the healing into the world. And it's now spoken into the world and it will be read into the world. And others like me, I want them to feel that they have something to say too, that their voices matter. And, and about possibility, I end the book with one of my favorite quotes. And, you know, and it happens to be Robert Kennedy, you know. You have to be careful when you talk about even politicians alive or dead now. Because, yeah, um, but... You don't have to agree with everything he says or everything he does to love his quote, right? I just thought, what an amazing... That has been my whole life. I think of... I dreamt things that weren't, didn't exist and, and always lived with the question, why not? Rather than just seeing the world as it is and asking why. Mm. I was I was tired tired because that's not enough for me. You you see me as a, a, a mental illness statistic, and all you ask is why. And meanwhile, my life has lived in well um, in terms of dreams and possibilities. And I'm always asking the question, why not? And that's where flourishing comes from. Why not me? If it not me, why not you? Yeah, you oh. don't know us that well, but like you are singing. <laughs> we say we ask people why not me to consider the question why not me all the time. Oh, really? All the time. Oh, yes, that is yeah. Because... You are with your people. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know how how jarring that can be for people? How good that yeah. jarring can be because we spend our whole life looking at the world as it is, trying to figure it out why it's this way rather than the why it could be something better <laughs> i know yeah. you know i just i i didn't see the point because why why survive as much as i survived and worked as hard to get to i get and, and and not dream it's the greatest revenge it is the greatest revenge to all those people who sent the message to me, you don't belong. I don't care about you. You're not loved. You don't, right? And I'm like, hmm. Mm-mm. No, you well, can't take that from me. <laughs> it's it's a reclaiming of your story and giving yourself the fullest permission to rewrite your story, how you wish to see it, how you dream it to be, rather than, I think, I think so many of us or so many parts of us are we let the outside world and people who really have no business in it define those parts of us, right? When, when, and it's so easy Mm -hmm. to forget that we're the only ones who get to define who we are and what we want and how we go about it and what we believe. And so, you know, it's, it's such important work. And I think, as you said earlier, it's, it's a lifelong work for for each and every one of us yeah. um so so in your new book and again i'll say the title and we'll link it of course but languishing how to feel alive again in a world that wears us down and what a beautiful title for what we were just discussing um you know you you've quietly been studying languishing for years and you're now you're coming out with this book you know, before we hit record, you are a finalist for some big lists. You said Oprah's reading your book. So this book is coming out loud and proud. Let's call it like it is. <laughs> so what what makes now, do you think, the time for us as a society to 
loudly and proudly address our collective languishing? Well, of all things, I never imagined a pa- I would live through a pandemic and experience one in my lifetime, and that it would take a pandemic of all things to elevate awareness of my work, and of all things, to put the focus on languishing rather than flourishing. I always thought, oh, everyone's going to want to talk, right? Talk about the, <laughs> the flourishing stuff, the mental health, good mental health stuff. But no, you've got to meet people where they're they are at, and here's. The way I think about it, why why now? We're of course we're living, I guess, post-pandemic now, and things have gotten back to normal. And I think people are done with their pink clouds of hey, you know, this is just amazing to be back out in the world, and things have gotten, you know, back to normal in terms of our just the way we feel about this new freedom. But for the first time, people of with some powerful people. It didn't matter if you had power, money, um, education, where you lived. COVID was the great equalizer. And for the first time, a lot of people experienced what millions of us experience on a quite regular basis, which is that the world takes things that you value and takes it from you without your permission. For the first time, people of, of, of all walks, CEOs, powerful people, um, felt what it was like to have something taken from them without their permission. All the good things that they took for granted were suddenly made fully aware uh, uh, to them. And I have some hope and some pessimism. <laughs> I think that's 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 could be a, a moment of global empathy, where people with money and power to change things don't forget that and start helping this. I call this a movement, right? Because it's a movement to change um, and add a a, a new way to approach our, our suffering in this world, and especially to prevent some mental illness. But I think now, because that pandemic is equalized and every, almost everyone experienced it, my hopeful part is that they won't forget that and they'll empathize and um, begin to realize how important this is in the world. Pessimism is that it's pretty easy for people um, to get back right into life as if, and everyone wants life the way it was. I mean, that's really scary to me because it wasn't that great. And and we sometimes hear people say it wasn't that great, and we needed to change. Some people are changed and sticking with the changes, and others are like I wanted to get back to the way it was, and I'm like, oh my god, our little goldfish memories. Yes, soon we will forget. But here's the thing: the pandemic um, it added things of stress and demands to languishing, but languishing has been with us forever. And I write about this as. It goes back into human history, into the recorded human history. In the ancient world, it was the eighth deadly sin, asthedia. And I know if some of your listeners have read um, some books, some people have equated asthedia with depression. But I'm convinced after reading uh, what these Christian monks, they were called the Desert Fathers, were writing about, they said it was want for interest in life. It was not sadness. It was emptiness. It was the loss 
of it was a loss of good things that they started their day with, and suddenly at noon when they paused, they felt like, um, wow, why am I here? Why am I doing all this? Some very haunting questions. And so it's been with us, and it will continue. I just hope it doesn't recede it into people's memories um, and they forget. Well, well, your book will certainly help people remember and and serve as a reminder that um, there is a better life out there waiting for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, the opposite of languishing is flourishing. And what I think is so cool is that flourishing. Again, to dumb it down, my my brain thinks in in terms of dumbing things down. So to dumb it down, flourishing is really action oriented. I, I love that you're not like flourishing is not just like wake up and feel happy, mm-hmm. wake up and go like skip down the road. Right? You're, you you name five quote unquote vitamins of flourishing, and it's learn, connect, transcend, help, and play, and those are all verbs. So mm-hmm. why is flourishing, which again is the opposite of languishing, why is flourishing made up of verbs and not these feeling emotions that, you know, are so often overtaking our Instagram feeds and yeah. everything we see out there? Yeah. And, and, and in fact, flourishing um, consists only of three questions that have to do with the emotional be- well-being. Three out of the 14, do, are you, do you feel happy, satisfied, or interested in life almost every day or almost every day? And all you have to do is say yes to one of those three. But I'm here to tell you, and I, there's all kinds of evidence that feeling good without functioning well, which is the remaining 11 signs of, of six of which are psychological well-being, which is about um, the pronouns I and me. And then human beings are also... Um, Social creatures, of course, we hear that again and again. Um, and there's five questions around social well-being that pr- privilege the pronouns we and us. And it's it's action-oriented or verb-based because it's Aristotle's philosophy is really about attaining excellence, right? And when we hear hear the word excellence, we think of college degrees and grades, right? I, but excellence to the ancient philosophers was about um, living a more ethical life. And all of those qualities that go into functioning well are really rooted in what I would call everyday standards of excellence that, ha- that human beings around the world seek and talk about and want more in their life. They want their life to have direction and meaning, in other words, purpose. They want to have what we call autonomy, which is the confidence to think and express their own ideas and opinions. They want to belong and and have a sense of belonging to a community. They they want to have something that they are are doing that is valued and makes them feel like they're contributing something worthwhile to the world. They want to be challenged to grow. They want to accept themselves. They want they struggle sometimes, but there is a sense of they want to accept others too. They want to be able to make sense of what's going on in the the world around them. I could go on, right? All of those things don't come just because you're just sitting on a cushion or a mat doing yoga or meditating. You've got to go out in the world and do something. You've got to do something and do it in the spirit of becoming a better person for others, right? That's the internal path that I talk about. The external path to flourishing and happiness 
is about, I want to be better than other people at what I do, right? Nothing wrong with that. that that's your, your, our resumes reflect that. And we, we default to that. I want to be better than you at this. I want to do, I want to, but that's okay. You can do the vitamins that way. Sometimes I don't, I wouldn't discourage anyone from going out and practicing helping just because you want to help more people than your, your friend. Competitive helping. Let's have a competition. Who's the greatest helper in the world? Fine. But I encourage people to really set their intentions sometimes when they're doing one of those vitamins and think about that what you're doing is trying to become a better person for other people. And that gets back to, to the rootedness of living an ethical life. We think of ethics and doing right or wrong. Well, ethical lives in, in the ancient world and to this day is privileging things that we might think spiritual and religious communities privilege. Honesty, courage, mm. kindness, compassion. Well, no, that, so did yeah. the ethical world. Right. Yeah. That's why the world's in trouble, because those things have been relegated to the world of religion. And only I think it's like 20 percent of people actually participate in organized, you know, weekly religion anymore. So somebody, somebody else needs to take up the mantle of honesty and generosity, and, you know, all of that. So I'm glad you have. Well, I do wonder and it worries me where if we're throwing away spirit, throwing off the weight of the code of spiritual philosophies and religion. Tell me what in your life challenges you to be a better person, a good person, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, what? Because I'm not so sure I can't identify. I, yeah. I suppose you could just say you work on it yourself. Like some people say, you know, nature is my spirituality. I get that. But that I just, I'm not saying you have to be religious to benefit from doing spiritual and religious practice. In fact, you don't. But just, don't do what Americans do all the time, which is take medita- meditation and deconstruct it from its philosophical, ethical roots. Like, yeah. like Buddhists would never ignore the Eightfold Path. Right. We would not right. just meditate. Yeah. And yogis would not just do poses. Not no, even. Yes. <laughs> Both of those things are preparations. They're the, the, right. the summit is something different. That's, I call it, those things create the base camp. Yeah. Where you then can see life clearly and yourself clearly for once and start doing the work of becoming a better person. Yeah. Without all the ego. Yeah. It's interesting. Earlier today, Rebecca and I were talking about ambition and how, you know, as we've gotten along in years, you... I uh, can say that I've realized that the difference between, I think, ambition and having a mission and a purpose mm-hmm. is sort of what you discuss. You know, you, I think you even say in the book something about like success as a barrier to happiness or success as a barrier to fulfillment, something like that. And I think that distinction between ambition, achieving things for achievement's sake or for ego's sake versus uh, a mission and a purpose, which is deeper and richer and, and involves um, helping others or being of service. Um, I'm curious, we talk about success a lot and we're going to ask you about success later, but I know um, in the book, you can refresh my memory, something about success being a barrier to happiness. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, if I, th- I think I know where, what, what you're referring to and it's, I, I, we pursue these paths and in particular, the external one, which is all about success. 
I'm just using that term loosely, but I think we generally know how we measure success in the external world in terms of degrees and the college you went to. And it's not good enough to go just to college anymore. <laughs> You've got to be in a certain college in a certain location at a certain rank. And um, right, so there's all kinds of metrics. And we have a world where we keep count of all of those things. And we're very tuned into that hypervigilant to a fault. And I think there's, there's something about success that once you've experienced it and tasted it, it's almost like an addiction. You want more of it. You can never rest with it. The, there's never enough. Yeah. You, yeah. Right? You can talk about enough, but no, no, no. You can. It's, it almost seems sacrilegious to say, well, isn't, don't you have enough now? Yeah. What well, one thing. <laughs> like somehow my life is over if I stop acquiring more things. I'm like, no, it's not. But that's yeah. how focused it, it can be to the exclusion of where does your significance lie, which is a different people will remember you somewhat for your money and if you endowed things and you know uh, whatnot, but. Most of us ordinary folks aren't remembered for those things and for, for, for good reason. We've lived pretty humble lives. And yet, most people remember you because of what you've meant to them. Mm -hmm. The impact you've had on them, what you, how you cared. And your significance is what people talk about long after you're gone. I mean, I still, when I go back to my hometown of Three Lakes, still. People will talk about my grandmother every time, anytime my friends came over, she was baking bread or cinnamon rolls or doing something. I was always, and they never left without having a meal or a loaf of bread. And I was like, and that's not the only thing she did. She was yeah. a wonderful, wonderful person. She was, it was just this remarkable significance in her life because she, she was a really good person. Yeah. We remember yeah. that. And then there's people like uh, Mahatma Gandhi and others, right? Very famous, or or King, or Desmond Tutu and others, right? Uh, Mandela, who combined both. Yeah, and yeah. that's that's really the I think the mission we should be encouraging our young people to start out with in high school yeah. and in college. Yeah, success plus significance. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, there's two work-related topics that we talk about a lot and we get asked about a lot. So I, I'd love to hear your take on each of them because they do relate to your book. They relate to languishing and flourishing. The first one is people be on autopilot. So this is something that happens when someone has sort of gotten comfortable in a role. Uh, they're not maybe challenged. They're not maybe super happy or satisfied, but they're a little bit stuck. They're, um, you know, they're going through the motions. They're maybe not uh, unhappy enough to move. How do you know, or how how would you think about? Hey, should I do the five vitamins and kind of get reinvigorated where I am, or is it time to jump? How does someone kind of assess that? How can somebody, if they are, you know, on autopilot in their role, either get reinvigorated through the use of the five vitamins, or when do they know mm, it's actually not a vitamin thing? It's time for me to leave and move on. Well, I would want to know, the question you ask is very specific to one, one out of the 11 facets of functioning well, and it's called personal growth. 
And human beings, um, um, many of us, really welcome what I called in the book just manageable difficulties, right? Challenges that are just ex exceeding uh, where we've been. And, and the ideal world is that just manageable challenge is, is a flexible thing. And, then, and if, if it could just automatically in your work continue like a, like a little uh, dial that keeps going up as you get better at things. But that's not the way the world works. Um, but some of us, like, so people might not be languishing, but what you've hit upon is that even if they're not languishing, they might have some serious deficits and some specific things that go into flourishing, like personal growth. They're not being challenged anymore. That's not good because I know kids that aren't challenged. Uh, if you're a par parent, I've heard these stories. And, oh, do they find ways to get in trouble? <laughs> yeah. And and so I've heard um, my wife works in, in a, a law firm and um, it's interesting that people uh, with more education, sociologists have shown, they don't wait to be asked to do things. They ask for, right? They feel a certain sense of agency. And so they go out and ask for, can I work on something more challenging? Right. I'm feeling disengaged. And I think it's because uh, this stuff that I'm doing is pretty rote. Could somebody else be doing that at where for him or her, it would be challenging. And I could, could I be doing other things? Yeah. So it's like a dance. And what I could imagine in another dream of why not, um, managers and employers look at the questions that go into my, my diagnosis of flourishing. And employees are also oriented around these things where, you know, some of these, I don't have enough autonomy in, at work. Nobody asks me for my opinion and nobody listens to my thoughts and ideas and opinions, but that matters a lot to me. And I have some ideas and I want to share them. And I'm, I'm not feeling engaged in that realm or, or, you know, I just don't feel like I a, a sense of belonging. I mean, we work on teams, but, you know, I just don't, and I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, I don't feel like I belong. Now, can we work on that? And let's think about you. You've just given us a good idea of how we can use your book in some of our corporate works. <laughs> Rebecca, I'll be talking. I know. I know. I'm like, oh. My thought is, has, could you imagine an employee review and a discussion on how in the next year to change things and then set, set these and measure these things then? Yeah. A right. Flourishing forward organization. Imagine, yeah. you know? Quickly. Yeah. And yeah. my dream is the same thing happens at schools. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. I got kids, so yes. <laughs> well, so the the other kind of work-related buzzword, um, I'm sure you've seen and heard everyone talking about burnout. Everyone's burnt out. Everyone's burnt out. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear, I know there's part in your book where you talk about protection against work stress through flourishing. And yeah. so my question, mm -hmm. I guess, is like, it's a little chicken and egg. Do we flourish so we don't get burnt out or do we use flourishing to get out of, you know, talk to us a little bit about what you would actually, how you would actually define what burnout is and then what are the tools to prevent it and pull yourself out of it? going to be cautious. I'm not an expert in, in burnout. I just know enough to sound dangerous enough. I do know it's not the same thing as languishing, that's for sure. And I write about that in the book, but it's quite clear to me that I could see people um, landing and languishing after an extremely demanding period 
because there's something about going through a period of high demand and work. And then suddenly when you're given, you've got time to yourself suddenly, this has happened to me. It's like, oh my God, there's like this quiet. And then all of a sudden I feel this emptiness. I feel kind of numb because I've been overwhelmed. Um, and that might be a normal reaction. Lang languishing can be a normal reaction, just like sadness and fear can be normal reactions to things that are going on in your life. Now, I make the point, you know, just like psychiatrists say, sadness and fear can morph into something very bad when it's persistent and intense. And languishing is the same. If you stay there too long, it becomes this problem that I write about um, in the book. So I do think there is a place for thinking about burnout, but also being very cautious not to attribute to people what may seem like burnout, but actually is a demoralization. There is a researcher uh, who has studied um, teachers in K through 12 who were, who everyone was saying they're leaving the profession and, and because they're burned out. She went in there and interviewed teachers and it was because it wasn't because they were, there was too many demands that they couldn't handle. It was just that the institution did not allow them to, to live their values, the values that brought them into their profession. Doctors are saying the same thing. Lawyers are saying the same thing. I mean, it's all over the place. So it's important to, to not confuse burnout and demoralization because it can look a lot alike. And both of those conditions can then and land you in, in languishing. But here's the thing, flourishing, I don't, there's some more studies you give, that I talk about in the book that suggest to me that flourishing is a protective factor that allows people to handle demands and adversities better. And one was this study of a three-week study, and, and every day they were asked about the sources of stress, that then what kind and how much sources of stress they had experienced that day. Then they asked them about their moods, negative, um, in terms of anger, resentment, sadness, fear, and all those negative things. So negative mood. And 84% of the, of the days, people experienced sources of stress. And it didn't matter if you were flourishing or languishing. People who are flourishing experience as, as, as much source of stress as people who are languishing. But here's what the study found. People who are languishing had a, a way worse day when they experienced those sources of stress than people who are flourishing. Flourishing is kind of a, it mitigates, it, it dampens how, the way in which sources of stress can create negative mood, while languishing is an amplifier of it. And it's just reversed in the Tuesday in the Life of a Flourisher study when flourishers. And languishers um, did more of a vitamin. They all had, a, they, if you do something, you have a better day. But flourishers had a way better day doing the same thing than languishers. Why? I don't know. So they have, when they engage in something like helping, they do more of us. And it creates a better day, a way better day. But the good news is if you were depressed or languishing and you did something rather than nothing, you had a better day. But if you were flourishing and did nothing, you didn't have an any better day than someone who was depressed or languishing and did nothing. So you got to get out there and do something. And once you start moving in that direction to flourishing, you're going to start seeing yourself 
not responding and being as reactive to sources of stress and adversity in your life. And I don't know why, and I'll admit that the study didn't look at that, but there's more than one study that shows this. I think what's so cool about that is just, again, the power that we all have over our own lives, right? And action doesn't need to be the most momentous, time-consuming, energy-consuming thing you've ever done, but it can be our friend Britt Frank um, talks about micro yeses, right? What's like the smallest action that you can take to help build momentum, to help yourself flourish more, to help yourself feel a little better, to use your language, the smallest vitamin that you can take. So I, I really love that. Corey, we could go on and on, but I know we have a time limit with you. So um, the last question before our, our quick rapid fires, and this is a big question, but we have to ask you because it seems like you've you found such a purpose in your work. And you know, when we were talking earlier, you even said that you've left certain bodies of work because you didn't really see the purpose behind it. So how can anyone, big question, answer it as simply as possible. How can anyone find more purpose in their lives or in their work? And I'll let you choose which path to take in your answer. Yeah. Well, I ask um, two, I, I, I think they're very simple questions in, in, in that chapter. And I, I demand a yes or no, nothing else. Do you want to help somebody or help something in this world? Second, do you have the necessary skills, uh, ability, and time, or whatever to do that? But the most important question is, if you don't say yes to number one, don't bother me with purpose because you're not going to find it. Because purpose is premised on trying to leave the world in a, or a better place in your own way. And people get in their own way because as soon as they start saying, I want to help and get involved and want to act on my purpose, they think too big. And I'm guilty of that sometimes. I was like, I want to solve that problem. What I just listened to a a, a television uh, show where they were did a report on the Syrian refugees, and it broke my heart. And I was like, God, I want, but I can't. I can't do anything. And so, some people, I always encourage. You said, think micro yeses. Well, think small. There's nothing wrong with small, and keep it local. Keep because to really benefit from helping, you have to. People will take greater pride when when it's part of where they live or what they live, or how they live. You can see that in your community, in your workplace, in your in the schools or whatever. So think local, keep it focal, and start small. Don't try to solve. Like I'm trying to solve the problem of mental illness. I say that, but I can't. I'm doing it in my own little way. Yeah. I think that part is so important and not talked about enough is do it in your own way. Not the way your neighbor's doing it. Not the way your parents did it. Not the way your friends are doing it. Do it in your own way. We all have our different gifts and resources and desires, things that interest us and excite us to to give to the world in a helping way. So what a beautiful um, message to leave us with. So Corey, we have three quick rapid fire questions. Um, the last two are really fast. So our first question for you is, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but in one, one or two sentences, how do you define success? That my work helps somebody else. Beautiful. And where can our listeners find you? 
Well, I guess it, it, like most people online, and if you want to get to know me, I bear my soul in that book. And that, that book is devoted to gathering all of us lost souls so that we can all together find our way home. And again, your, the book is Languishing, How to Feel Alive Again in a World That Wears Us Down. It will be out by the time this episode is released. So everyone grab a copy. And of course, as a reminder, if you grab a copy on Amazon, make sure that you leave a review, which is so we'll helpful. We'll say it so you don't have to. I know. We'll say it so you don't have to, Corey. We know how this works. Um, <laughs> Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. This was an absolute pleasure. I know that both of us are just so inspired from speaking with you and you left us in our audience with many, many nuggets of wisdom. So we appreciate the, the work that you're doing out in the world. And um, and thank you. Well, thank you. And it was a joy. You are wonderful interviewers and your warmth and concern is right out front. It seems so genuine. So thank you. Know, you. When, when we saw your book, like on the list of upcoming books and read the subtitle, we were like, who is this human who has done research to prove everything we've ever believed and like <laughs> lived for? And, you know, on a, on a personal note, I can say I, I was a languisher for a long time um, and, and pulled myself out of very dark places. Yeah. And so this work, the you know, I, we do the work, we do work very differently, right? Our work is different than your work, but the mission and the purpose, it's, yeah. it comes from that, that place, that place of, come on, let's do this life <laughs> thing. It can be so beautiful, right? You know, it can be so beautiful. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate, Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate, Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Plate, Full Cup. That's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L-L-C-U-P or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com. www.fullplate.com. F-U-L-L-C-U-P dot com.